welcome to the new Chicago Way podcast. In this podcast, we're going to talk about Chicago's crushing pension problems. Before I introduce the guest who we'll interview in a moment or two, I thought I would just review the pensions uh, and the problem in Chicago. As we point out in the book, the pension debt, the amount that is owed to beneficiaries of the plans in Chicago for just the seven plans that relate to Chicago employees is $43 billion. That's more than 44 of the 50 U.S. states, and yet it's just one city. That doesn't include the massive pension debt at the state of Illinois level. So uh, the other fact that we point out is this debt has been created because politicians have decided not to fund the plans. And they have a format or a plan to catch up the pension funding on the top five plans that is published in their annual reports. The politicians that have not funded this debt intend to catch up this funding to 90% in the next 40 years. If they do that, according to the schedules that they've published in their reports, the payments will require $170 billion worth of increased contributions which means increased taxes over the next 40 years. And the schedule actually calls for $100 billion in the last 20 years of that 40-year period. These could easily be people that haven't even been born yet that are entering the workforce, and they're paying off pension debt for people that have already received their benefits today. A popular term that is used to describe this is kicking the can down the road. And I bristle when I hear about that uh, and hear that term used. A popular term that is used to describe this deferral of the pension payments is kicking the can down the road. I bristle when I hear this term used. Uh, It has such an innocent connotation to it. The fact that it's a road and not a city street evokes some dusty country road that is insignificant. And if you find a can that you can actually kick, it must be empty and it must be likewise an inconsequential problem. But in reality, what is happening is this is the deceitful dumping of debt on the dumb. And when I say dumb, I'm using the formal definition, which is somebody who is unable or unwilling to speak. It is certainly no reflection on the voters and citizens of the city of Chicago, but they have no voice in this. All of these pension decisions have been made by the state legislature and the city government, and there's no voice. People had no voice in granting the pensions and in deciding whether to fund or not fund those pensions. So to help us understand this complex topic, we have invited Lawrence Massal, who is the president of the Civic Federation of Chicago. In addition to that, uh, several years ago, he served on a commission, a panel, that was created by the Society of Actuaries. It's called their Blue Ribbon Panel for the Study of Public Employee Pension Plans. It was a nationwide panel of fiscal and pension experts that looked at 
the pension problems that plague cities like Chicago and states like Illinois. So we welcome Lawrence to our podcast, and uh, we have a number of different questions for him. Lawrence Massal, president of the Civic Federation, thank you so much for being on the new Chicago Way podcast. Thank you. My first question, how long have you been working on the issues of pensions and finances on the city of Chicago? Well, um, certainly most of my career at the Civic Federation, which I believe is approaching 18 years at the Civic Federation. Prior to that, I worked in and around state government for two different governors, and so I worked primarily in economic development, and um, so the city finances and the city's financial capacity was an issue that we were aware of, but primarily in terms of analyzing and trying to come up with recommendations for improvement, it's my tenure at the Civic Federation. And over that time you've had at the Civic Fed, how, if at all, have you seen the conversation change uh, around finances and, I guess, pensions specifically? That's what we want to focus on today. I think if you wanted to measure sort of improvements, the public's understanding is much better than it was. Different organizations have paid more attention to the underfunding of the pensions and what it means. I think we unfortunately now have experience with you know the state of Illinois and how fast or not so fast it will um, rush to deal with a situation. Um, it's unfortunate that we sometimes have this view, or the General Assembly seems to take on a view, that we're in a crisis, let's wait and see how it works out. Instead of saying, we're in a crisis, we need action, we have a state you know, that has been very slow to recognize what a lot of the rest of the country has known for a long time, that Illinois is in big trouble and Chicago is a, a mirror image of a lot of the same practices that we're established by the state of Illinois were either invented or pushed down upon the city of Chicago and its pension funds. And that's the sort of general understanding among the public is very interesting. And Ed's done work on this too, just study groups and, uh, you know, case studies with folks in the pension plans and, and just general taxpayers in the Chicago area. I believe the per person pension debt just for the city funds in Chicago is around $15,000 a person. That is more than double any of the major cities we looked at. Um, what is the effect of that? First of all, do people realize what the effect of that is on the day-to-day services and operations of the city? And two, what, what is the effect of that sort of a load on how the city operates? Well, so the city, and it's really, I, it's hard to talk about the city without the state because all of the city pension funds and their funding schedules and what um, and the requirements for the benefits are all statutorily established. So sometimes there's a debate whether whose idea it was, but there's no doubt that it's now um, all the pension benefits for the municipal employees, the police, fire, laborers, and the regular municipal employees are in state statute, including the schedules for funding the pensions or not funding the pensions, what the source of revenues are. Uh, a very large part of the city's operating budget, in particular its property tax levy, goes into the pensions. Right now, 100% of the city of Chicago's property tax levy goes into pensions and debt. 
and that's not buying any new services that's just basically paying for the benefits and in many cases the unfunded liabilities of the pension fund it's paying for yesterday's services it, at best it's paying for yesterday's services it is paying for you know benefits that are not immediately apparent to the average taxpayer in chicago and we were really glad to have you here especially because of the fact that you served on uh, the society of actuaries blue ribbon panel which we used a lot in this book um a fantastic group of folks working on this issue from around the country, not just Chicago. And obviously that's the thesis of our book is bringing in uh, experiences of other major cities and other major governments and how do we apply those to Chicago. So I'm curious, what was it like serving on that panel and looking back on it, uh, what do you think was most important about it? It was truly a privilege and an honor to be part of a national panel. The Society of Actuaries is held in very high regard. But there was also a little bit of defensiveness by the actuaries themselves and why they were basically putting together their own blue ribbon panel because actuarial science and actuarial analysis is key to understanding pensions and pension funding. And there was, there is still a lot of misperceptions on what it means to be an actuarial-based plan. There are best practices in actuarial science, and then there are other things. Unfortunately, Illinois has spent a lot of time creating other things. So I would say the, the benefit of the, of the report and the work, which went on for well over 18 months, um, the meetings um, around the country, and we had experts from California, from New York, even from Canada that came in and pri- provided their perspective. Um, The benefit was you had an objective, and as objective as we could be, independent view of what the options were, as well as a lot of time spending what created the problems. Lawrence, uh, uh, I read the entire Blue Ribbon panel report. People told Uh, us you might. (laughs) And uh, it was chock full of great wisdom. Uh, What was interesting to me is that the heavyweights on the panel were not actuaries. Were any of those people on the panel actuaries, or were they all public policy people or businessmen like yourself? Um, Well, so we were heavily staffed by the Society of Actuaries, and many of the staff were actuaries. We had unlimited access to actuaries, but I think the goal of, from the internal goal of the Society of Actuaries was to do, do something outside of their profession and looking from the outside in. There is, you know, was, I believe, concern that actuaries could be blamed for a lot of the problems that um, exist around the country. Maybe not rightfully blamed, but there was, a, there, was a, there was a sense that if the actuaries had been more um, s- stronger in their demands of following actuarial best practices, places like Chicago and California and um, other places around the country might be in a better position. That quickly, you know, from the practitioners, from people with real experience, while we didn't have full actu- actuaries as members of the commission, we did have people with a lot of experience managing pension funds um, in New York and serving as advisors. And we had um, representation from the Federal Guarantee Fund. So a lot of relevant experience. And what became clear is a lot of times language impacts 
you know, people's understanding in the language of actuaries and being able to say it's actuarial based when without really understanding what that means can mislead public officials and the public generally. I see. Well, uh, since I wrote uh, the lion's share of the pension chapter in our book, uh, it's my darling, but I will admit to you that instead of reading that chapter, I wish people would read the Blue Ribbon Panel Report. Uh, it's a real eye-opener. As a matter of fact, I've been thinking about sending a copy of it to everybody in the General Assembly in the state of Illinois. I think it could be very helpful mm-hmm. for people. I think it's, it's helpful. It was helpful for me as um, someone from Illinois and spent my career in a, mostly in Illinois that um, that you understand what the perspective from other states are and what the national perspective are. Yeah. And also understand what best practices are mm-hmm. and how far Illinois is away, and the, the, thus the city of Chicago, which is under the control of the state um, statutes yeah. and, and um, in terms of how we fund pensions and how the benefits we provide. So, yeah, the report is, is very beneficial. I hear from people still regularly about the mostly positive reactions, although you do run across people that said you should have been stronger in this area or that area. But I think the panel, from my perspective, achieved its goal. It received national attention. It's received federal um, congressional attention. It also um, resonated throughout most of the states um, in terms of improving people's understanding. So the the report is chock full of uh, epiphanies and great policy recommendations. But I'd like to just ask you some questions about uh, some highlights. It's these questions are certainly not encyclopedic. They're just kind of touching on some things that might be relevant to Chicago. So the first question that I would like to ask is the panel recommends that pension plans, uh, public employee pension plans, uh, stay and remain 100% funded uh, continuously. And yet uh, the legislation and amortization schedules in Chicago call for the plans to get funded up to 90%, and even then after at least 40 or more years from now. So could you comment on that discrepancy? Sure. It is widely recognized that economically the the cheapest or the most efficient way to manage a defined benefit plan is to have enough assets so that the return and on the investment of those assets generates enough so that you reduce the cost of tax dollars that have to go in to pay the benefits. By staying at 100% or more funded, you're assured that the amount of tax dollars or state revenues or city revenues that have to go in to pay for that is much less. And in fact, if it's over 100%, you can have periods where no new tax dollars are needed. You're just basically building on the returns. And when you were starting these public employee pension funds, it was a reasonable goal and it was very achievable. And many states and many municipalities achieve that goal by always putting in enough money to pay the full actuarial cost. That means you don't build the unfunded liability. You don't allow that to grow. You put enough assets in to stay 100% or more. The reason why you would allow for more is because you know that there's going to be downturns in, in, in the economy and you want to prepare for that. 
Illinois has created on the fly its own system of measuring whether a pension fund is adequately funded. It's true that there are actuaries involved in the city pension funds and in projecting what their financial needs are, same with the state of Illinois, but the actuaries don't, don't get to dictate how much is actually contribute. They recommend, they identify what the actuarial required contribution is, and I think it's it's really important for people to know that it's not just a ambitious goal to be 100% funded. It's the most reasonable financial goal that you can have to stay 100% funded. If you want to make sure that you are going to have enough resources to pay all of the benefits as they're accrued going forward, you stay at 100% funded. We have ignored that in Illinois. We have basically allowed ourselves to almost organically grow in a bad way, whereas we just take it for granted that we're going to maintain unfunded liability and somehow manage it in spite of the pressures. In, and what is even worse is the unique construct we have in Illinois where the state determines the benefits. The state legislature is sets in statutory form what can be funded in the pension, what source of local governments are, but also the benefits and also the, in many cases, staffing levels and some, um, especially with relation to the fire department, all of those impact the cost and the, of maintaining a defined benefit plan for these governments. And as we saw with Mayor Emanuel, during his um, last two terms, he was mayor for two terms, even if he had an idea that he wanted to improve the funding of the pensions, he still had to go to Springfield, convince a majority of the legislature and the governor to, be, to support those changes and those improvements. You mentioned that uh, the, the Blue Ribbon panel came up with some new vocabulary to explain things. And there was a term that I haven't seen anywhere else, but it talks about it quite a bit, and it's uh, intergenerational equity. Could you tell us uh, what that concept is, and um, are the funding practices in Chicago consistent with that principle? Intergenerational equity is basically the notion that the, the people that are getting the benefit of the services provided by the government should be paying for them, that we shouldn't be pushing off the cost of the services that we receive, including the pension um, cost for the employees that are picking up the garbage or providing the police protection or doing the essential services of city government, that we as the beneficiaries should be paying for those um, services, not pushing it off onto our children and grandchildren. The the idea is that in the case of pensions, if you're not able to maintain 100% funding so that you have zero unfunded liability, then you should at least attempt to um, return the, un the, the funded level to within the reasonable life expectation, the working life expectation of the people who are providing those services. It's actually a mirror sort of concept. We should have intergenerational equity that the taxpayers are only responsible for the benefit, for the services that they are going to receive, not the past services that their parents or grandparents may have received. And that when we're looking at how we pay them off, we know in the case most of these funds, especially the Chicago funds, have an aging population. So they're not, it's, it's a fairly uh, short 
work-life expectation before people, in the case of police and firemen, can retire at 50. Um, in some cases, under the old uh, existing plan, that you need to get that back to 100% funding within their useful life. We don't do that. We basically, in Chicago and in the state of Illinois, we ignore intergenerational equity issues and instead go on what is the easiest path for us to both maintain the pension benefits in their existing level of without reducing the, the other services that we want to purchase with the limited tax dollars we have. You made a good point about assumptions, and there was a great uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal focusing on state pension costs, and it showed a harrowing graph of all the states, what they're paying, what percent of their budget goes to pension costs now, uh, as well as retiree health care, and how much of that, how much that percentage would increase if we're using a more reasonable assumption on the investments uh, that are in those funds. How much, what's the discount rate? What are those going to return year over year? And uh, using a 6% return rate for Illinois, to pay that with that assumption would take half of the existing state budget. Does Chicago realize, what is the effect of that at the city level in Chicago, those types of assumptions? And do folks realize that that, that sort of Damocles is kind of hanging over their head? Well, I think certainly um, it's not a positive impact on the city. I think the fact that we have been through for the last decade a situation that has um, been very damaging to this, uh, the city and the state's reputation. You had a state, for instance, that didn't have a budget for two years. It's better that we have a budget now, and that, but even that budget doesn't fully account for um, improving the condition of the pensions um, by adequately funding them. There's pressure right now in Springfield to push out the funding schedule mm -hmm. and not make the full pension contribution. There is always pressure in every legislature and every city council to, be, to provide more services, to provide more expenditures than they have resources. Because the city is so handcuffed to the state in terms of the pension and the benefits and the statutory construction and the fact that our um, elected Supreme Court members have not provided very much guidance on how this state can possibly manage its $130 billion in unfunded liability if we can't address the 3% compounded automatic increase that state employees get um, after a year of retirement. Um, it, it has a very negative consequence. And it, is, and, it is, and it is corroding the citizens of Illinois and the city of Chicago's confidence in their government because it is taking so long for us to deal with something that has been known for so long that a lot of the public is um, giving up hope that the government is going to ad effectively address this. You know, to this point, uh, back to the Blue Ribbon Panel's report, uh, it was, I was uh, surprised and pleased to see that it recommends amortizing unfunded or underfunding of pension plans over a 15 or 20 year period. That's not the experience that we have in, in Chicago and Illinois. So could you uh, explain that and, and also talk a little bit about the shape of that funding, whether it should be level dollar, uh, percentage of payroll backloaded. Back uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, what was discussed 
uh, in the blue ribbon panel. Yeah, so the the panel, I mean, again, there was clear ideals, right? What the ideal and most efficient way to basically fund your pensions and certainly the you know discussion that we've had on intergenerational equity was was self-obvious to to people that you have these are mature funds right there's we you cannot treat these funds basically as as if we were starting again like that that, that basically you just need to pay a little bit and then watch the returns grow you recognize that you're going and we're seeing this in Chicago pension funds right now, you have more people that are retiring than new people that are coming in to take those positions. So you can't invest as strategically if you know that you're going to have to have access to those funds to pay out in benefits. So the um, there was the 15-year the figure goes at looking at the fact that you have fairly mature funds. People are going to be retiring and thus you need to be less risky rather than more risky because you won't have the amount of years to recover from a risky investment. If you increase your um, expected rate of returns, you are driving the risk into the system. And a new fund with very young employees has the ability over the course of their career before they'll need that, um, that payout to be more risky, to be able to absorb more risk. Older funds that allow people to retire within a decade or, or two decades will not necessarily have the time for the funds to recover, and you're going to need those assets to pay out. So you should be less risky and in that. It's the same. In our personal lives, we would not recommend that a gentleman in his 50s or 60s put 90% of his portfolio into stocks and 10% into bonds. We would maybe recommend that for someone in their early 20s or just starting out their career because they can afford that risk and we want to change it over time. But what you're saying is that the city of Chicago is acting like a uh, an early 20s uh, person who just got their first, <laughs> their first paycheck, maybe. I think what we're seeing is that basically we've allowed these funds to be um, really outside the economic experience and the people that are managing those funds and making those decisions have other pressures and are other pressures, whether they're political pressures, whether they're investment return pressures, so that they can basically reduce what the demand is going to be from the city treasury or what the actuarial um, calculated contribution is going to be, because even the city funds are not at they're far from 100% funded. They're not on a schedule to be um, 100% funded mm-hmm. in a reasonable time frame. Lawrence, you've, you've talked about the role of state government and uh, obviously the state pension code in affecting all of these things. And as we look at the big plans in Chicago, there's one that was reasonably well-funded in my lifetime, the, the Chicago Teachers Pension Fund. But the other funds, the police and fire, municipal workers, have been, uh, they've struggled for much of my lifetime, and I'm no spring chicken. So uh, there was an amazing recommendation in the Blue Panel Report, and that is that legislatures not enact any plan changes within one year, that it must span over two years. Uh, I thought that was very interesting to see in an actuary's report. Could you, where did that come from, and, and what, what's that all about? 
Well, it came from the basic understanding of the best run funds, the best basically, the best practices, is that it takes time to understand what the implications of changes in your benefits, in your funding, if um, schedule, and what we do wrong, and is just like a poster child in Illinois, is we make multiple changes to the pension benefits, multiple changes to expectations, and um, then and we pass them very quickly altogether. And there is not sufficient time for an actuary who needs to analyze and look at all the considerations and decide if they're reasonable to project what that cost is. And if you make so many changes all at once, you will not get it right as to what the cost of those changes are. And you will insufficiently, and that's why there's the, the, the recommended lag, because you're going to have to make changes in your funding and you need to, need to match your funding to what your actual changes in your benefits, changes in your um, investment um, strategies are. So you should allow sufficient time to really consider it. We have the worst situation when we had allowed the Illinois legislature to f pass numerous changes to the pension code, in some cases dozens of changes all wrapped up into the same bill without any meaningful actuarial analysis that is made public or that may have not been done at all, even though there are rules in the legislature that require pension impact notes. The amount of time allowed at the crush of the legislative session and the urgency of making these changes often means that they go without real full analysis. And so there is an inherent recognition by the panel that that's not the way to go. Don't make changes. Don't make big changes quickly. Make changes only when they're needed and, and then have enough time to understand the implications and the cost of those changes. Well, Lawrence, uh, I, I got so much out of the Blue Ribbon Panel report, and I consider it still the gold standard for best practices. Is there, as you reflect on this, is there anything that was left out that you'd like to have seen put into it? Um, should a second edition come out, or should uh, they just make the movie out of it so that everybody knows what what's involved? Well, there... There is a lot that the the panel um, is you know focused on that tried to convey to the public. It, it's all it's a difficult subject matter, quite frankly, to get enough time and attention of the legislature, of the governor, of you know the various interest groups. But it's clearly an educational piece, and it's also a warning piece. And people from Chicago and Illinois. If they needed more warning, this report provided it that we are in a place far different than well-run states. There's a reason why the city of Chicago is has a less than investment or junk, while it's currently um, viewed by the rating agencies as less than investment standard. It's because we have this pension obligation and we're not addressing it in an effective way. And there is a question of whether we are going to, and the same is true in tied together is the state of Illinois' failure to deal with this in a meaningful way that takes into account best practices. And the, the, what's, what's missing from just reading the report cover to cover is the reaction that these other experts had to Chicago and Illinois. There was a recognition, and it was the saddest um, reaction when I first joined the panel, was it became quickly apparent that people in other states 
New York, California, all of which have dealt with their own financial crisis, separated and sought to separate Illinois and Kentucky from the rest of the country and saying that probably Illinois and Kentucky had gone too far and we don't see a reasonable path for them back to stability. I pushed back very hard on that because I'm not only because I'm from Illinois, but because I believe that these are really math problems that require political will. And if you can combine an understanding of basic math and compound interest and match that with a political will, you can achieve stabilization of our pensions and move them in a direction that would be positive for that, everyone. That political will question keeps coming up. And when we do presentations or when we're on, uh, you know, in interviews, and I'm sure you've experienced this in all of your work, is uh, the common chorus of those who do not want to address this problem is, well, where are the votes? Where is the political will? And obviously it's our idea to get this in a blueprint so that it is efficient and smooth and frictionless so that folks can get behind it. Uh, one footnote to that, to your, to your comment about sort of the uh, everybody pointing at Illinois and Kentucky and laughing is that this was convened when the state of Illinois actually did pass some, some pension reforms and they were not yet struck down. Uh, they were later struck down and uh, the problem has only gotten worse, obviously. Um, so where do you, just wrapping up sort of, we talked about, you talked about the 3% uh, compounding benefit increase. That would certainly take a constitutional amendment. Uh, we talk about moving to uh, defined contribution plans. Where do you think the political will is now or where might it be in the next couple of years for the city and the state on this issue? So when we started, we talked about progress, right? And part of the progress is there's better public understanding. Political will comes from the public, comes from the public's understanding that and to hold their elected officials accountable and to basically see through the um, masquerade, that we, a fake or false promise that we're dealing with the issue. That's what it's, what it's going to require. One of the, the realities is if you believe that these um, pension benefits can't be changed, then you have a higher obligation to explain how they're going to be funded, right? And I think the math doesn't work for you to basically say we can't change this and basically not have some in, even larger than it already is. With 25% of the state budget going into pension and pension-related debt, that is not sustainable. That is going to give. The question is, will we solve it? Will we address it in a timely fashion where we won't have lost a lot more time? Time is not your friend when you're dealing with compounding interest liabilities. Time, basically a crisis, as we started to say, demands immediate attention. It demands experimentation. We have been uh, not aggressive in Illinois in addressing our Options and even though there's been some modest experimentation with negotiating, you know, benefit um, changes with in exchange for cash, those those haven't been vigorously uh, embraced by the administration or by the pension funds. Hopefully, there will be more of that. I think in the case of the city of Chicago, it's at a point right now where Mayor Emanuel had tried through raising the property taxes, through ra raising 911 fees, through raising the water fees to prop up the pension funds and buy more time, was not sufficient because of the growth of the unfunded liability. 
and the lack of cooperation that he got from the state legislature. And while they eventually did pass some portions of his changes, it was an elongated process. So we're far from the end, but we're um, closer to the middle. But there is a lot more that the state and the city need to do. Lawrence Massal, president of the Civic Federation, thank you for discussing the sexiest of all public policy topics with us today, pensions. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.